Welcome to Blockchain Versus, a podcast specifically intended to dive deep into the technology that we call blockchain and how it has the massive potential to disrupt a number of different industries and literally change the face of how we do business every single day. We're also going to be bringing on some of the most influential people in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space to talk about projects that they're working on and how this technology truly has the opportunity to disrupt the world as we know it. This is Blockchain Versus. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you again so much for joining us for another episode of Blockchain Versus, the podcast that explores blockchain and cryptocurrency and the implication it has on a number of different industries and how it's poised to disrupt the world as we know it and how we do business. Today, we're joined always by my co-host, Miss Christina Bruhan. How are you today? Doing pretty great. Hello, everyone. Well, Christina, I know we're both pretty excited today. We do have a great guest on that we're going to do an interview with. His name is Michael Creedon. Michael does a number of different things. He's right now the head of business development at Drawbridge Lending, the CEO of Forev. I know he was a CEO of Traditum, I believe, group as well. And he worked with Time Mag and Bloomberg. So he's all over the place. He's a force to be reckoned with, especially on LinkedIn. He writes some incredible articles. He gets covered a lot. And he's kind of a go-to for a lot of blockchain and crypto knowledge in the space. So excited to have him on. And with that said, I'm going to introduce Mr. Michael Gruden. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely. So I gave a brief introduction, some of the background and some of the things that you've done, but I'd love to hand it over to you to just, you know, like everybody kind of says, you know, how did you dive into the crypto rabbit hole? But before you get into crypto, I mean, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about you and what you've done. I know you've done, I believe like Peace Corps and things like that. So I'd love to kind of hear your story and your journey and kind of how that evolved into the financial sector and getting ultimately into crypto. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, well, it's funny. You know, I was in. I, I started in the um, the bond markets in the, in Chicago in about 1997 or 98. So about roughly 20 years trading U.S. fixed income. It was great. I loved it. I started the firm in 2003, and I was the CEO and had a risk. Um, we grew that firm to about 75 employees and staff and. So, you know, I was very active in capital markets for a long time. And, and in, in 2017, for all kinds of different reasons, it was just time for me to do something different, you know, and I, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Um, but I just knew that, you know, we'd had zero interest rates for 10 years, and it just seemed like time to try something else. Um, just by totally by happenstance, I ended up at a dinner at a CME event um, I'd already left my firm and, you know, it was sort of like looking for my next uh, position or what I wanted to do. And uh, the conversation quickly turned to Bitcoin. And this was in November of 2017. And some of the people at the table were very prominent traders and investors. And I was just like, wow, I don't know anything. So I literally went home, started reading about it. And that's when, of course, Bitcoin goes from 4,000 to 20,000 in like four weeks. I'm like, whoa, you know, uh, I was like, wow, I really got to pay attention. But the thing that I, the thing that struck me, the more I looked into it, was the absence of real information in the space. And 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 I've analyzed as to why. I mean, the banks don't want to get involved at all, so there's no bank research reports. The mainstream media, certainly two years ago, had little to no interest in involvement in it. That's in, that's improved in the last two years, I think. But then you have this this third phenomenon where a lot of the commentators in the space 
are being paid to promote things. And, and so it's really hard. You don't know who, when you read about, hey, XYZ coin, you don't know who's behind that. It's really difficult to get uh, good information. So anyway, long story short, I decided, you know what, I'm going to start a website and I'm going to go into like the research arm of crypto. And I quickly kind of realized, you know what, it's it's just easier to be a voice in social media than to manage a, um, a website. I just you know, so I just I focus my efforts on LinkedIn, and it's it's crazy. I mean, I've written I've written every single day since February 2018. I write every seven days a week, and I'm taking any days off. I enjoy it. It's a labor of love, and I write all the time on LinkedIn. And it's it's interesting to see how that's evolved for me, you know, personally and professionally, um, because you know when you write that much, you become very aware of what people want to read. You know, and and I'll just mention this, and it's not to you know, brag or anything, you know, but you know, your, your LinkedIn network is obviously a function of who you're connected to, you know, but what I've realized is the more I've written, you know, I, I watch like who's reading what I'm writing. And I mean, I could just go through the list. I mean, it's Goldman Sachs, Citadel, Amazon, Ernst and Young, PricewaterhouseCoopers, JP Morgan, the CFTC, read what I write, you know, and it just, it just goes back to my original thesis. These are very, very uh, bright people. um, And they're interested in the space. And again, they would go read this in the Wall Street Journal of Bloomberg, if, if it were covered as thoroughly as it could be. But the space is so dynamic, that, um, look, journalism has changed. And there's a lot of sort of vigilante journalists like myself that just just write what they want. Uh, you guys are, you know, evidence of, evidence of that as well. So, anyway, that's sort of how I got into it. And um, and then I'll, you know, just quickly mention, you know, but earlier this year, my former business partner, uh, you know, he had started Drawbridge last year, and they said, "Look, Mike, we'd love to have you come over and be in a business development role here. You know the space. We know you. You understand capital markets, which is what Drawbridge is doing." So it was just like it was perfect on every level. So I. I, we, you know, got back in the saddle with my former partner and, and started up in basically January this year with them. So, um, and then, you know, I could, I, I'll go into explaining what Drawbridge does as well as we continue to talk here, but that's, that's my background and, in, in oh, and just one, one last thing, but I mean, I, I was a journalist before I started trading, I did work for Bloomberg in time. And I have to say, you know, I didn't realize how much I learned, you know, working at those two places. And it really helped as I've, as I've written so much in the last year and a half, I, it's just amazing how much I learned at those two places about what to do and what not to do and how to how to finesse things and, and be honest with readers. Um, but obviously, those are two great places to learn how to write. I love it. I love your story. And uh, I I do want to give a shout out to Forrev. Uh, Revolution <laughs> by Design is where you can find most of his uh, articles and definitely excited to explore what you're doing over at Drawbridge. Um, but I'd like to go even further back before Time Magazine and your, sure. your journalism, but to the Peace Corps. How did your time with the yep. Peace Corps shape your world as it relates to cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. I, you know, I haven't thought about that a lot. However, I will say this, you know, it was such a, it was really a fascinating time in world history, quite frankly, that, you know, that I, I went into the Peace Corps 
in basic, you know, 19, late 1990 to 1992. And a lot of things were happening at, around those times. I mean, first of all, you had the fall of the Berlin Wall and then the communism in 1989, was all kind of, and then, you know, so that that's going on. In, and then, of course, the changes in technology. That's the thing. People just, it's almost hard to remember a, a period when you didn't have cell phones, when you didn't have a laptop computer, when you didn't have the internet. And of course, I'm in, in Africa, I don't want to say stuck in Africa, but I'm in Africa. So we had none of those things. But it turns out a lot of those things we have today, we didn't have here in Chicago either. And you look back and think it's only 30 years ago, 30 years ago that, you know, you, you see how the internet and, and things have changed. And I just feel like it, it literally reminds me of, you know, I just, I see cryptos and blockchain is kind of the early days of the internet. I, you know, I think a lot of people see it that way. And look, there's going to be a lot of false starts, a lot of false messiahs, a lot of things that don't work out. But I also think there will be a lot of th- there will be some things that emerge that will be that will change. You know, global society. You know, I, I remember when I was trading um, in like 2000 or 90, 1999, 2001. I can't remember exactly the year, but people, the media used to mock Jeff. Bezos and Amazon, because every year they'd say, oh, when are people going to start shopping online? Amazon missed again. This is never going to happen. <laughs> Just think how, how preposterous that is 15 years, 17 years later, whatever the case may be. And the thing that the concept that I think about a lot um, back with, you know, from the Peace Corps and is this concept of Moore's Law. And this was from Hewlett Packard back in like the 70s. And it's about computing chips and how they 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 double in speed every 18 months or whatever the equation is. And I think what people just don't realize, you know, the, the comparisons, to the internet are interesting, but I, what people I think forget is the, the pace and the rate of change in today's society is much faster than it was 30 years ago, way faster. And so I think that the changes that we're going to see in Bitcoin, blockchain, all these things we're talking about, they're just likely to, they're not going to take 30 years. They, you know, and that's what I think people don't, they, they fail to realize sometimes. So, you know, things are, things are happening at, at breakneck speed. Michael, I, I totally agree, right? And I think we've all seen that chart where it shows, um, you know, the, the time it took to adopt certain technologies. It started with, you know, with the telephone and the pager and the blah, blah, blah. It goes to the internet and then it goes to Facebook and then it goes to WhatsApp. And every single time that there's new technology innovation the amount of time it gets to critical mass or it takes to get to critical mass of a certain amount of users of, you know, 5 million, 50 million, hundred million users, um, you know, is expedited tremendously. Uh, and yeah. it's because obviously each of these generations, you know, is born into utilizing this technology from a young age, right? I have two young kids and, you know, they know how to use an iPad and iPhone better than most adults, right? And that's just normal for them. Right. So I totally agree. It's, it's really interesting in, in bringing up a lot of these points where I agree that also blockchain is on the path to success, number one. Uh, number two, it's scary to a lot of people. We've talked about this on previous episodes where it's just scary because people don't know what they don't know and that scares them. They don't know, is it going to replace my job? Do I have to understand the implications of this because this is going to be like my strongest competition if I'm in the financial sector? Uh, There's so many different thoughts and considerations there. So, I mean, obviously you're a shining light for, you know, good information about the industry and we're on the same page in terms of what we do for a living and just getting unbiased information to the general public so they can make their own and informed decisions. Because what we saw obviously at the end of 2017 running up into early 2018 
and this huge spike into you know nineteen thousand dollars for Bitcoin, there was a ton of people that lost a lot of money, and it's predominantly because of the fact that people are trading on emotion and not based on sound data. And that's what we're looking to provide as well. So I'm glad we're on the same page there. So for the folks that are, you know, tentative to come back in the space as an example, but also while knowing that technology moves at a much more rapid pace nowadays, I mean, like, what would your message be to folks as it relates to investing and deploying assets into the Bitcoin space and blockchain, um, whether they're institutions, whether it's a mom and pop or just, you know, a day trader, whatever it is. What do you tell those people to help them realize that this is something that they can't ignore? Right. Um, well, I'm happy to report that I, you know, I, I, when I ran my trading firm, we didn't have outside clients. We weren't technically a hedge fund, it's, you know, so we didn't need licenses. But because now I'm facing clients, you know, I had to take my Series Three, which I passed, and that was exciting. So now I can, yeah, nice. I can offer advice. I, yeah, I can offer advice to people. Now we, our platform can only allow for institutional. Um, clients and borrowers and lenders and so forth. And the reason for that is because we use options, which are deemed as swaps by the CFTC, and you can't sell swaps to retail customers. So, but having said all that, I mean, so, you know, so I'll pretend my audience is an institutional client. And this is what I would say to an institutional client would be, you know, let's say you're an asset manager and you've got 10 million or a hundred million or a billion dollars under management. My question to them would be is what allocation is appropriate to you into digital asset space, i.e. Bitcoin, you know, is it zero? You know, is it somewhere between zero and hundred percent? I would not, I would not recommend hundred percent, but you know, I, I think that some allocation starts to make sense, especially if you have a long-term time horizon. Um, one, and, 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 you know, and some, some clients may agree with that and some clients may not, that's up to them. The, the thing that I always try to remind myself, and I always try to remind people, whether they're United, in the United States or elsewhere, look, in the United States, we don't, and, you know, my, this is just my own opinion, we really don't need Bitcoin. And if the whole world looked like our country, then Bitcoin would probably have a pretty weak uh, use case, in my opinion. You know, we have a strong economy. We have a strong currency. We have a strong military. We have a strong legal system, you know. And, and so for all of those reasons, I don't think, you know, Bitcoin doesn't come anywhere near the U.S. dollar, and it probably never will. However, there's 216 countries in the world and 184 currencies in the world. Many of those countries simply cannot manage their own currency. You look at Venezuela, look at Zimbabwe, look at Iran, and, and there's many, many countries around the world. If you want to look at developed countries in the G10, look at Japan and Europe. There's $15 trillion in negative yielding bonds in the world today. That's insane. That's crazy. You go into a bank, you give them $100,000. They say, thank you very, very much for your money. We're going to keep 1000 just for just to store it here. That's what negative bonds mean in the real world. Right. And the reason, the reason they're doing that, the reason the banks are doing this, is they're trying to encourage people to take risk, to start a business, to buy a house, put money in the stock market. And, but the opposite's happening. People are scared. And so there's all these, there's all these things happening. And, 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 and I would just say to a client, say, look, in a world of $15 trillion in negative yielding bonds, what is the appropriate allocation of Bitcoin into your portfolio? In my humble opinion, zero is not the right answer. <laughs> you know, is, it, is it a tenth of 1%? Is it a half of 1%? 1%? You know, then you, you can you discuss that. But, um, and I think that that's, I think that that's becoming 
certainly much more widely accepted here and abroad, where some allocation to Bitcoin or other digital assets is becoming appropriate for some people. Yeah, no, agree. So you, you bring up a few interesting points and I want to get your take on this because this is, uh, you know, in line with conversations that I have with my team and Christina every day anyway, um, talking about trends and what people are thinking in terms of correlations, you know, from, uh, you know, the cryptocurrency market to capital markets or commodities, whatever the case may be, right? If you look hard enough, as I'm sure you know, like you can always find a correlation, whether it's real or not, or justifiable is a different story. Right. Um, but, but really what it comes down to is I'm kind of curious. So, you know, initially, you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency was not necessarily following or coupled, um, you know, to any other type of industry, whether it was a currency, uh, it wasn't necessarily tracking the dollar, it wasn't tracking the Dow, it wasn't tracking any other market necessarily. Obviously, we saw things like Greece uh, defaulting, and then you saw money flow into Bitcoin as an example. So it looks like these macroeconomic events throughout time have warranted some people diversifying some of their assets into these types of cryptocurrencies. Over time, obviously, things have changed, right? To where we see some sort of correlations for a short amount of time, but then it kind of decouples. We see the altcoins being tied to Bitcoin for a long time, and then all of a sudden they decouple. Right? And now there's a few that kind of are tied together. So we're seeing these, these market regime changes and it becomes really cumbersome for somebody to realize you know, that it's not a perfect science. It's not perfect math. You really have to be honed in on a lot of different factors and realize that markets are changing in this industry so much. But what I've seen lately, most specifically, including with some of the things that you've written about inverse yield curves, right? Or people are really understanding that Bitcoin is becoming accepted and adopted around the world, whether it's governments, or et cetera, or institutions around the world. And because of that, the macroeconomic factors have a lot more of a direct impact on the industry than maybe in the past. So because this is something that I think you're passionate about and because people like Travis Cling right about as well, and this inverse yield curve, and I'm seeing it more and more. Love to get your take on not only inverse yield curve, but also some of the other macroeconomic factors. Right. Well, I mean, you know, just listening to what you were saying, I think what's attractive to some people about Bitcoin in particular is that it's it's not correlated to other asset classes. That I mean, now there are times that it may appear to be, and maybe it is, but I think generally speaking, you probably, if you looked at it over a 10-year track record, it's really not correlated to anything. And that, that's appealing to some people because what you have with this central bank uh, push is all assets seem to be highly correlated to one another. And so, you know, that's, that's attractive, like I said, in certain areas. Um, right. But um, I was just trying to think what else I was going to say. I mean, Look, I think that what's going to, what's gonna, you know, I'm just going back to what I was saying before, but I think what will, what will happen is, you know, people around the world will have to make a choice. I mean, look, look at another country, for example. Look at Argentina. Argentina is defaulted under bonds. They do it every 10 years. It's just over, it's just, you know, and if you're sitting in, a, if you're an Argentinian, uh, Argentinian bus driver or teacher, or, you know, you're working on a, you have a pension down there, you know, your pension's toast. It's not going to, it's not going to come to fruition. They're going to, you know, and, and look, the same thing could happen in Chicago. And so people are going to say, look, I don't want to get I don't want my life savings stuck in the Argentinian uh, dollar or peso, whatever it's called. You know, I don't want that. And so and they're going to start looking for alternatives. I think that's already started to happen. And I think that that trend will accelerate. Um, I think the biggest thing that's, you know, the biggest thing that's holding it up, quite frankly, is some, you know, general lack of clarity about regulation. Um, but I think as, as that gets sorted out over the next, you know, 
one to two to three years, whatever the time frame may be. And people get more comfortable with both regulation, custody issues, the ability to spend their current, you know, the Bitcoin or other or other cryptos, you know, then that's where, we'll, you know, we'll see how this thing grows. That's so interesting that you say that, that actually segue. You took my question and you made it global even before I asked it. <laughs> so. uh, that's wonderful. Um, I was actually going to ask you, you know, for, for the little guy, not the institutional side, yeah. because there's, but for the little guy, someone like me who like grew up on a farm and I see these people as like mini entrepreneurs, you know, they have to take risks, they have to become educated. Um, but what would you say to someone like that? Who's interested to diversify? You can't just give a blanket and go, Oh, go ahead and invest in, you know, Bitcoin. There's so much more strategy to tap into. That's not exactly rocket science, but it does yeah. take a bit of, of education, right? Yeah, well, this is funny. You, you know, you hate to turn into a curmudgeon. I've only been in this space for, you know, two years, whatever, less than that. When I got into it, and, you know, this the timing of it, I was I was Mr. Altcoin. And I was, oh, my God, I wanted, I, mean, I was buying pizza coins in New York. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And the longer I've been in it, at it, and I've seen the scams and the hoaxes and the frauds and the nonsense, I, you know, I, I, I've become much more of a Bitcoin maximalist, quite frankly. And I'm not, you know, it's just... And I, I, I think that Bitcoin is a force to be reckoned with. It has to be. I mean, if, if, if I would seriously, if, if, if my brother, or my you know, cousins or friends said, what do you what do you think? If you're going to do anything in digital assets, part of it and probably a, a big part of it should should involve Bitcoin. You want to do something beyond that? Fine. Good luck. But um, and, and the reason for it, you know, I was talking to one of the traders in Chicago and he summed it up perfectly. Bitcoin has a proven use case. Everything else is still trying to figure out what that is. Um, and, and you look, whether it's Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, Ripple, Bitcoin SV, Stellar, Litecoin. I mean, obviously, they have, they have use cases that are being formed today. You know, uh, but if you go beyond those top 10 or 20 coins, whew, I mean, you're right. You know, in my opinion, you're really throwing darts. And the funny thing is, again, I'm not... I'm sure there's a coin that's 300th in the world today that'll do a thousand X. My ability to pick what that coin is, is no better than me throwing a dart and just, you know, so, um, but it, it is interesting when you talk to people and you hear like, what is the coins? I ask people all the time, what coins do you like? You know, it's funny as a coin I'd never heard of, but everybody talks about is this coin called Grin. Everybody loves Grin. And, you know, one guy was telling me they think it's Satoshi Nakamoto was involved with Grin. Nobody even knows who Nakamoto <laughs> is. But anyway, so suddenly it just got this buzz and everybody's talking about Grin. It's private or whatever that. And so I say, OK, fine. I'm just going to make a note of that. I'll read up on Grin. I'll pay, you know, that, you know, that's the that's the hot coin in terms of buzz at the moment. Um, and it's been like that all year. But, you know, this is where just talking to people, reading you know, again, a lot of it's going to be wrong, but the more you kick the tires and listen, you know, you say, all right, fine. I'm, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to track that. That's really what it is. I'm just going to track this coin and what, look what the progress is. Right. Because I mean, exactly. it's still a very, Grin is still a very small coin. I think the market cap of all of it, I'm just guessing is, you know, 10 or $20 million, which is really pretty small. In the, I mean, maybe it's a little bit more than that, but it's not, not, you know, maybe 50 million, but you know, that's pretty, these are small numbers when you think about the type of impact some of these projects may have if they're successful. 
Right. I completely agree. We, we talk about sentiment and quantifying sentiment so you can see the needle move. You yeah. saw the same thing with Chainlink happen this year as well. So um, just kind of like that sentiment, that buzz happens and it definitely has a, an impact on the market. That's right. Um, yeah. Before we go too much down that road, I have another kind of like layman's request here. You guys were talking about inverse yield curve and, you know, Travis Kling has kind of put something out recently. Um, Jeremy was joking. He clings to the idea of inverse yield curve. <laughs> But it's been kind of a hot topic for like Bitcoin and crypto trading as as a whole. And I know that 4Rev covers a ton of stuff, including yield curve. But can you explain the concept of yield curve and inverse yield curve and how you use it in your analysis? Sure, absolutely. And it's even just to try to simplify it just to the most, you know, even just don't even worry about the yield curve. You just 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 say what you know, just think about interest rates. And just think about when you go to a bank and you, and you put money into a savings account or a checking account, what is the expectation we were all sort of, what's the expectation? You put $100 into a bank account, you check back in five years, you're supposed to have more than $100, right? Because that's interest on your investment, you know, like and they're paying you and that's how this, this whole thing works. I mean, you think about how the economy works. You have the central bank, they print money. They give money at the, what's called the Fed funds rate to banks like J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. And then those banks take that cheap money and they lend it out and people buy cars and buy homes. And you know that, that's how the economy generally functions. But in, in, in a negative interest bearing economy, you put the $100 into the bank, they're going to take a haircut on your money. And, and that's, that's very punitive. So you know, think about it. You know what's what's the net effect of that? People will stop putting money into, and that's what the central banks want. They don't want you to put money in the bank. They they don't because they want you to go spend it. So that I mean, it, it, it's just it's so perverse. I mean, they're you know they're so they're so eager to get to, to kickstart the economy, which is their job. But at the same time, they they're penalizing savers. That's that's the that's the punchline. They're penalizing pensioners, older people. And, 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 you know, because these are people that need uh, some sort of income to live and they're not going to get any yield on their on their current money. So I don't know if that if I kept that in layman's terms enough. I personally think that this experiment with cheap money is very, very dangerous, extremely dangerous. You know, you look at the you look at, you know, you ever travel to Germany or Europe and you look at the wheelbarrows of money and look at the impact that bad monetary policies had on mankind. I literally think that the stuff that's being done is very dangerous, potentially very dangerous. But 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 forget what just forget about what I think for a second. Just leave me out of the equation. You have people like Ray Dalio at Bridgewater. You have people at PIMCO, the biggest bond fund in the world, making very you know serious statements about we're going the wrong way. That's what they're that's what they're saying. You know, again, leave me out of it. But Ray Dalio came out a week or two ago and said, look, I'm concerned about global central banks monetary policy. I think people should be investing in gold. Full stop. You know, I, I think people should take a serious long look at gold. And, um, you know, PIMCO came out and said, these are the most dangerous credit markets we've seen since Lehman Brothers, probably more dangerous than Lehman Brothers. Those are warnings from people that have that have you know, battle tested. Right. 
going to say along that same vein, right, is are you saying people like Peter Schiff are actually right then? <laughs> you know, obviously he's a huge um, of gold and, and it, it kind of gets into a bigger question kind of along the lines of what you're saying right now. And I agree. I think there's some sort of correction, financial crisis globally pending uh, and, and, and incoming over the next few years potentially. But I also have heard people saying that for the last seven or eight years prior to that. So like, when is it actually going to hit? I don't think- Which is what know. scares me. That's the way it's been. They've been saying it for yeah. almost- a decade. I'm seeing, I'm not an analyst, right? But I see stuff happening. I see the cuts that he made with the, you know, that, that Trump made with the taxes and the companies reinvesting it. And people way smarter than me are saying it's a bubble on a bubble on a bubble. And you're talking about these banking practices that are punishing, you know, the people with the lowest credit scores have the highest interest rates and keeping them like in debt. And it's, it's just toxic and it's going to come crashing down. And I'm scared for, all of, you know, like I, that's part of the fun of being on the front lines of this industry is you get to see it unfold in this Darwinian like level. Um, But it's also terrifying because a a piece of regulation could swing it another direction. And I've seen so much change happen in the last year and a half, that bubble is going to burst. And I want to make sure that I have this bridge built underneath us before we get there. Here's what I would say. I've seen two major well, probably three. I probably, I guess I've seen three, maybe four. The, 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 the most calamitous events in the last 20, 25 years in financial markets, clearly Lehman Brothers was one of them. Um, there's no question about that. And then, and then in any particular order, you would probably say the Asian currency crisis of 97, 98, obviously 9-11, and then the tech bubble as well. I mean, if you say, okay, those are four things we've seen in 25 years. What what, and the real estate nonsense, 20, well, 2008, that was... Yeah, well, yeah, that's what I mean by... That's what I mean with like Lehman Brothers and, you know, the credit... Yeah, right. Same. That's what I'm referring to. And in in my opinion of those four things that, you know... And again, it could, you could have a, a scenario... First of all, again, I'm not predicting that things are going to fall apart, but, it, you know, there's always a... And as a trader, you always think, well, what could happen? I mean, if things start to go badly, I think there's a possibility that it'll look like the Asian currency crisis, the Russian currency crisis in 97, where you start to get weakness in merging markets. Because I still think, look, the U.S. banks are as strong as ever. The U.S. economy is strong. I mean, I don't see the problems. And I'm not saying we can't have a real estate problem here, but I think our problems are manageable and we have the depth and the balance sheet to manage it. I don't think a lot of the emerging countries in the world are anywhere nearly in the strong a position as we are. So I think like last year, you saw that it, it, it started to happen. Turkey really had a problem with their currency. And somehow it, somehow it, it, it came back, you know, like it, and I think maybe, maybe because market participants are better prepared because they've been burned before. But that's what happened in 97, where you started to have one country had a currency problem, spread to another, spread to another. Nobody can pay each other. And now you've got a global catastrophe going on. And, and so, you know, these are the kinds of scenarios that if they unfold, you know, I ask the question, well, how would Bitcoin look in a world if, you know, Brazil or South Africa or Turkey's uh, currencies just get devalued like Venezuela's has? What, would, would people want to own more Bitcoin, less Bitcoin, or the same? I, I think in my, you know, in certain scenarios, people might find that more attractive because it's a global currency. But, you know, look, we don't know. I mean, there's, there's, <laughs> it could get regulated out of existence. That's another possibility. It's unlikely, but it's, 
you know, you, we don't know how this is going to unfold. And like you said, that's what makes it kind of, I guess, fun, but, you know, and it creates a lot of opportunity as well. Yeah, it really does. So, I mean, kind of going back to what we were saying before around gold and Peter Schiff, I know we were making a joke, but I mean, there's really a kind of a debate on a global scale around investing gold versus investing in Bitcoin. Now that people are, you know, talking about how Bitcoin, okay, yes, sure. It's a store of value similar to that of gold. You know, what's your take on that specifically as it relates to store of value? And let's just say hypothetically, you know, we're in a position to where, you know, the global economy just had a tremendous economic downturn. Where should people move their assets? Is it gold? Is it Bitcoin? Is it a healthy mix of both? And do they do something completely different? And are they hedging against different things? Or is it really all the same? in your opinion? Well, well, it's funny. You know, you think about it. I actually think I get a kick out of Peter Schiff. I think he's great on social media. I'm not saying I agree with him, but I love his commentary and he's witty and he's, you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't following him until like a month ago and I think he's fabulous, but you know, it's really no different than our treasury secretary, Steve Mnuchin, the president of the United States, Donald Trump. They're they're very pro dollar because they have a vested interest for the dollar to do well. Schiff has a vested interest in, in, in gold. And, you know, meanwhile, the grayscale guys have an interest in Bitcoin. So they want to dump gold. But, you know, the reality, and so you've got these sort of like binary outcomes of buy gold, buy the dollar, sell, you know, buy Bitcoin. But that's not really how markets work. People, you know, most people want a diversified portfolio. They want a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And I, you know, I just increasingly think that people, uh, some people around the world will want to have, um, you know, some exposure to, to Bitcoin. I mean, one story I, w- I just wanted to mention, you know, I, my sister has triplets and last year they graduated from the University of Notre Dame all at the same time, which is the first time that's ever happened at the school. <laughs> triplets aren't very uh, common, of course. But it was, it was so fascinating talking to my nieces and nephews and their classmates about Bitcoin and their knowledge is like off the charts. And you talk to their parents who are my contemporaries and, you know, they don't know anything and, and literally nothing. You know, my, my brother-in-law went to Georgetown is like, hey, what's more expensive, a Bitcoin or a blockchain? I'm like, dude, like, what are you, like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't even know what you don't even know what you mean. And I don't know what you mean. But so the, the reason I, the reason I bring it up, though, the re, the twin pillars in my mind of why Bitcoin is not going anywhere. One is overseas, but also it's youth. The, the number of like you said about your, your children growing up on the iPads. You know, young people around the world grow up around technology. They have phones, they have Venmo, they have PayPal. They're going to be extremely comfortable with digital assets. They already are. Now, the reality of it is most of them don't have any money yet. They're too young. But look, look at how that's going to change over the next 5, 10, 25 years. It's not, you know, you're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. These young people are growing up on it and they're comfortable with it. And I think their, their willingness to embrace it um, is is not going to change. I mean, one, one last thing, and this is just a theory, but I think a lot, I think a lot of kids in high school and college, or maybe re- recently out of college, look what's going on in this country. The, a lot of families got blown up in in two thousand eight, and there were, you know kids' college uh, savings was out the door, and now kid, you know these look look at the college debt problem we have today. So I, I, it's another reason I think young people are just not willing to trust the old system. They want to try something new. Um, and, and it's, you know, still small numbers. These are really early days, but, um, yep. you know, I just think that I, I think 
think that the, the willingness of, of young people to put money to digital assets is, is, is a huge propeller going forward. You know, I totally agree. Uh, I even have some friends and I know uh, one of our advisors, uh, Travis, over at the Back Crypto Podcast. I mean, he's he's been one of those guys, obviously a proponent of the industry in crypto, and he even pays his kids in crypto, right? Just to even get them to be used to it and adopt it, control their wallet and their keys. Um, so it's really interesting. Uh, I see a lot of people kind of moving towards that, and I'll probably do that uh, coming up soon. My kids are maybe just a little too young, but I'll get there. So just, I know you have to get going. You're limited on time. We're going to end with the lightning round, you know, some rapid fire questions. I'm going to ask, you know, and just give your honest answer and we'll move on. But it'll be really interesting to hear some of your thoughts on these topics. A lot of the same questions that we've asked other folks. And it's really interesting to hear everybody's take because they are vastly different. So Mm -hmm. anyway, with that said, here we go. Which country will adopt Bitcoin as their base currency first? Uh, Japan. All right. Do you think companies like JP Morgan and Facebook coming into the space is good or bad for the industry? Good. Is Bitcoin ultimately a store of value or a peer-to-peer payment system? Mm, I'd say a peer-to-peer payment system. Proof of stake or proof of work? Hmm. (laughs) Uh, Proof of stake. Okay. I like it. Uh, put some A1 sauce on that. No, I just had to. Sorry. <laughs> you bring your steak with you. All right. So is Bitcoin right now undervalued or overvalued? Over what? You know, like today? <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say. I think, I think that the odds of it being higher in three to five years are, you know, significantly higher than they, you know, like I would, if I had a bet, is it going to be higher than 9,500 in three to five years or lower? I would bet, you know, heavily towards it being higher. But again, I would say that's a two to five year time horizon would be my yeah. estimation. I'd say there's an 80% chance that we're, we're, you know, sharply higher than where we are today than, than, we're, than we, you know, you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, there's a 20% chance, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe higher that I'm dead wrong. Well, you took my last question. I'm going to ask it a different way now. So I'll do a few more here and then we'll get to that last one. That's a fun one. So do you think an ETF will be approved this year in the U.S.? Probably not this year. Um, No, I'd say no. All right. A few fun ones to end because I know you have to go here. Uh, Let's see here. If there was one crypto that would eventually be the the Facebook to MySpace, right? Eventually take over and knock off the big dog on the block. And, and obviously, Bitcoin is that big dog. If there was one project, not even from a market cap perspective, but maybe just in terms of like adoption and overall usage, which one do you think has the strongest likelihood of actually doing that, if any at all? I, you know... I went up to Toronto for four days for a conference. I, I'm gonna. I, I think Bitcoin SV has an outside shot of shocking the world, but it, it's an outside shot. But I would not underestimate it. I, I just think that people people don't. They're getting too caught up in the social media commentary, and they're not looking at the fundamental technology that Bitcoin SV has, which is superior to Bitcoin. It just is. Now the question is, can they get people to adopt it? I don't know. Um, so I, I, I think that people are vastly underestimating Bitcoin SV's potential. It's my own well, then, well, then I have to ask the next question, even though I was going to skip it. Do you think Craig Wright is Satoshi? I, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. And I could care less. You know, I, I, I tell you, I tell you something. When he, when he, he spoke, it was the funniest thing. It was so funny. He speaks, he ends up finishing and he, he comes and he sits right behind me. It was the funniest thing. So I'm, I see him and I'm like, this is too funny. So I take a selfie. And of course, you know, he knows what I'm trying to do, you know, and I just take the selfie and he like smiles for the camera. It's just so funny. But, <laughs> uh, it was just, of course, I put it on LinkedIn. But um, I, I don't, 
I don't think it matters in any way, shape or form. I really don't. I don't see how it's important. You know, it's, you know, this is a crazy analogy. It's like somebody saying they're going to win the Heisman trophy. And they say, you know, when I was in high school, I scored 16 touchdowns in a football game. And they said, did you really? And then there's a debate about that. Like, who cares? Like, who right. cares? Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it, do, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's glory days. Like Bruce Springsteen, it doesn't matter what you did. It does. It, it just, and I don't know why they bring it up and I don't know why he talks about it, but like, it's just like the way traders think is like, what's, what do you have for me today? What do you have right now? And obviously that team has moved into the SV, but so anyway, it, I know it's highly politicized, but. Yep. I know you got to go. So we're going to end on one last question here. Uh, we play a game called over under, you kind of played it with yourself earlier. So I'm going to extend the time frame out to five years, five years from today, Bitcoin under or over a million dollars under. Okay. There you go. With that said, Mr. Michael Creedon, thank you so much for joining the podcast. This was a blast. Love to have you back at some point, especially as these markets are highly volatile. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot to talk about, especially as some of this macro stuff comes to fruition. So thank you again. Really appreciate it. And uh, hope to stay in touch. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Okay. Good luck. This has been a production of Blockchain Intelligence, LLC. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. The thoughts and opinions of Blockchain Versus and their guests are their own and should not be construed as professional advice of any kind. Before making any investment decisions, you should always do your own research and seek help from a professional. If you would like to get in touch with the Blockchain Versus podcast, please go to www.blockchainversus.com or email us at info at blockchainversus.com.